Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. Right, not that any of you needed to know this, but uh, I have a little scratch in my throat this week. So as, as we're worshiping and I'm trying to remind myself not to sing, uh, sucking on a little mint candy, keep me from singing, uh, apple cider after a little mint candy. It's a weird... The weird vibe. All right. The, the podcast is going to be like, what is going on? Uh, by the way, if you, uh, as long as I'm talking about the podcast, if you do not know we have a podcast, uh, we have all of these sermons put on the East Hills Sermon podcast. Very originally named, but easy to find that way. So uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, our website, church app. All the places you can find the podcast. Uh, part of why it's good for me to mention that this week, I was going to mention it later. I'll just mention it now uh, because these sermons that we're going through on thorny issues sort of build on each other. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Uh, so, as you're listening to this one, if you're going, I am really confused what he's hearkening back to, could be really helpful to go back and uh, listen to, to those. I also want to admit up front that this might end up being the most disjointed sermon I've done in a very long time. It has been kind of a disjointed week for me processing the things we're going to talk about actually this week and next week. Uh, And I think part of that uh, is because I care about the, the, uh, I care about the people that we are talking about so much. Uh, and my care uh, outpaces my confidence in talking about this. And part of the, the reason for that uh, in the, my, my confidence level uh, maybe is, is best explained this way. I mentioned uh, earlier as we were talking about the volunteer lunch after church, so if you didn't hear that, volunteer lunch after church, uh, that one of the roles we are looking for um, is uh, people who are, are willing to, uh, to let kids know that Jesus loves them, support their teacher, but also looking for people uh, who will sit and rock babies so that their moms can feel confident their kids are safe um, and, and be up in church. And uh, that that would be, of, of all the roles, uh, that would be the one that I would be like, yes, that's sounds like the one for me. Uh, and here, here's the thing. I have, uh, have two kids. Um, I, I have led them through the baby stages really long time ago, it seems. Uh, and um, if we were holding a conference on being a new parent or a parent of small children, I suppose... I could be one of the people who would talk about that experience because I've had that experience. Uh, Now, the number of times my wife had to rescue me or the child from that experience would disqualify me from talking at that conference, but that's fine. Uh, Technically, okay, fine, I've been there, I've experienced that. Uh, if If we were holding a conference on being a mom to babies and young toddlers, it would be so weird for me to be the keynote speaker at that. Like, that wouldn't make any sense. 
I, in the same way that if I was, uh, if, if we announced we were having a women's retreat and I was going to be the keynote speaker at that women's retreat, people would be like, that seems weird. Uh, and they would be correct. That, that wouldn't make a lot of sense for a number of uh, different reasons. And I, I bring all of that up uh, just to say that as we talk about stuff over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about things that are not my lived experience. Uh, much of it will be. We're, we're going to spend the next couple of weeks uh, talking about uh, bodies, why bodies are important to our faith, uh, why what we do with our bodies matters, and, and some or a lot of that is going to apply to me, and hopefully a lot of it is going to apply to all of us. Uh, but I just want to acknowledge up front that for those of you who have dealt with things like gender dysphoria, homosexual love, the bigotry that comes with it, um, it feels, that uh, comes in your direction, um, feels a little weird to have a heterosexual guy standing up here talking about this stuff. And I think that's one of the places where the church through the last few decades has run into some issues is we're, we're talking about things that we have not experienced. And so we end up talking about issues instead of recognizing that we're talking about people's lived experiences. I'm going to do my best to stick to what I do know, uh, to stick to scripture, to my experience, to my own uh, wrestling with God, because uh, that wrestling with God is so much of what this series is about. It's, it's talking about uh, the things that we wrestle with in our relationship with God or that people we love are wrestling with in their relationship uh, with, with God. And so we've asked some wrestling questions over the last couple of weeks. Questions like, do I actually believe that God is good? Sometimes we can grow up in church or spend a long time in church, and so we just take on that as an assumption. Like, do, do I actually believe that God is good? Do we actually believe that God is loving? How do we define love and what that means? And so we've wrestled with those things the last couple of weeks. And we ask this question that I keep coming back to because it lies behind everything we struggle with if, in fact, we believe there is a God, we, we have to wrestle with this question in particular, and that is, is God wise enough, present enough, and loving enough to know what is good for me? Is God wise enough, present enough, loving enough to actually know what is good for me? Because if I don't believe that God knows what is good for me, either because he's not smart enough or he's not with me enough or he doesn't love enough, then, then taking him at his word would, would be foolish. And scripture spends a lot of time telling us what is good and not good for us. So we have to ask this question, does God even know what's good for me? I, I do want to note that I'm making a couple of presumptions here about Scripture. So a little detour, talk about Scripture. We'll come back. 
Uh, the first is that I am presuming that Scripture is not written to us, but it is written for us. It was written to a different people in a different time, but it does contain for us, I believe, things that tell us what is good for us. It's written so that we might know what's good for us. I'm making the presumption that this document can be trusted, that it isn't some 3,000-year-old game of telephone, but that it has been carefully written and translated and cared for for millennia. Now, I am also presuming that it has been carefully written and translated by human beings who have lived their own experiences, who are living in their own time and have their own perspective, that there was not, in my understanding, a hand of God that reached down and grabbed somebody like a puppet and made them do things, or, or a hand of God that grabbed a cosmic pencil and wrote out scripture, that there are human beings at the, the behest of God in ways to honor God. And I, right along with this, believe and in presuming uh, what one scripture poetically referred to the rest of scripture as, which is God breathed. That the scripture we hold so tightly to, we hold tightly to because it is breathed out by God. It, it is inspired, it is moved. People have been inspired and moved to write these words and God has worked a preservation of these words and their meaning through the centuries. These are God-inspired, heaven-ordained words that are useful for encouragement and correction and teaching and for learning that God really does love us. And in the stories of Scripture, we see stories of people who continually turn their back on God and move away from God. And we see the movement of scripture is that God continues to move toward them. And as they are unfaithful, uh, he just becomes all the more faithful uh, to, to meet them where they are at. So this morning, building on those questions, I want to explore the question why are bodies important to our faith? Again, this series has been uh, crowdsourced. <laughs> uh, that, that you submitted different questions and issues that you're wrestling with or you believe the people around you are wrestling with. And some of those get down to, uh, nobody wrote in this question per se, but uh, a lot of the things that we're struggling with, we need to wrestle with this question first. Why are bodies important to our faith? Because scripture gives us lots of instructions on our bodies and how to treat them. Uh, scripture gives even more instruction on other people's bodies and how to treat them with care and kindness. So why so much focus on bodies? Why are they important? Uh, let's start at the beginning of our human bodies. Uh, Genesis 1, 27 says, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. One of the uh, reason one that our bodies are important is that our bodies are God made. Your body, my body, our bodies are God made. 
Psalm 139, 13, 14 says this, and so many of you know these verses. This is the uh, New International Version. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. You are made by God. And so is every person you will ever run into. With our offset noses and our gangly dangly limbs and uh, our weird lumps and bumps and curves and our crooked toes, and we are all made by God. You are not an accident. No matter what your parents told you. You, sorry. You are not an accident, and neither is your form. You and I are lovingly and genuinely made. And we are made in God's image. Specifically, there is something about the completeness of male and female that gives us the full picture of God. Full picture of God. Because that's what an image is, right? It's a a picture. Uh, That word that's used there in uh, Genesis 1 for uh, image is used a lot throughout the Old Testament almost always in reference to an idol uh, of another god, an an image of a different god. It it is this picture of seeing God or believing that you're seeing God through this thing. And one of the things that, that our God makes very clear is you will not make an idol to worship. You will not make some image, some man-made image of me. Why? Because God has already done it. He made us. That we are the image of God. And that there is something that is, that is required of community, that none of us individually shows all of God, that we are all needed. And specifically, Scripture calls this distinction of saying, okay, male and female is both really important here to get the whole picture of who God is. So with all of our stereotypes, and we'll talk about those in a minute, all of the things that we apply to God because we use the word he, and scripture uses the word he, we can lose the idea that that God made male and female to be his image. Being physical and visible, male and female, is how we were created to be the image of God. A couple of subnotes here. One, when I talk about male and female together, I don't mean sex or marriage. You reflect God as a single person just as well as a married person does. I mean that there is something about our biology as humans that images God, and I don't know anything more than that. <laughs> Could not tell you how that works. Other than scripture is clear about it. That there is something about male and female, our biology as humans, that images God. Because male and female are words describing our biology, our bodies, uh, what we might refer to as sexed bodies, S-E-X-E-D, in that we are born with a biological sex. Now, some people don't feel like their bodies match how they see themselves or how they want to be treated and seen in our society. 
We'll talk about that a little bit. Some people are born with chromosomes that don't match their physical bodies. I'm not going to give you the birds and the bees talk. I am going to ask you to think back, if you can, all the way back to high school biology or maybe middle school biology lessons. Chromosomes, okay? XX chromosome, female, XY chromosome, male, okay? Some people... Do not, their chromosomes, as they look into, they uh, come to procedures or doctors examine them or whatever, uh, some people discover, and some people know this very early in life, some don't know, uh, maybe ever, that their chromosomes don't match their physical bodies, that what we would expect their chromosome combination to be uh, is not what it is, uh, or what we'd expect to be based on their bodies is not what we find. It's actually a surprising number of people, at least I was surprised by this, this number of people who find themselves in this situation. Uh, it's 0.02% of people in the United States. And that sounds like a really small number until you actually do the math. And it is over 7 million people in the United States, or approximately the population of the entire state of Washington. It's a lot of people. 7 plus million people. They are also fearfully and wonderfully and lovingly and genuinely made. We use words like male and female and some people begin to feel excluded. And I want to use them on purpose because scripture uses them to say, hey, this is part of how we image God. But I also want to recognize the fearfully and wonderfully made people who go, Boy, even my own biology contradicts itself. And I want to make sure we acknowledge that to treat them in any way other than as fearfully and wonderfully made creations of God is a failure on our part. That, that to... <laughs> I can't imagine, because of my situation, having somebody tell me, oh, well, your body is the way it is because sin has infected the world and it messed you up. But these are the things the church has told people. Church, if we're, if we're going to care about the fetus in the womb, we need to care just as much about the seven plus million people walking around who would define themselves as intersex people. Uh, if that is you, You are not a mistake or an accident. You are fearfully and wonderfully made just like everyone else. And there is something about being physical and visible as biologically sexed humans, even if that's complicated, that images God, reflects God into the world. Now, we know from Scripture that the world did not stay as God had intended it. And so, yes, there was this moment of sin entering into the world and it uh, creating a, an infection in all of creation. And as part of God's rescue plan for humanity, these bodies that, became, that, that we know are important because God made them, God said, oh, man, if you think you're important because I made you, watch this. Our bodies are important because they are, our, our human body is important because it is God inhabited. 
is God made, the human body is God made and God inhabited. Y'all, Jesus came in a human body. Do not miss the significance of that. Heaven thinks so much of the bodies that God created that heaven inhabited our flesh and walked in it with us which gives me an opportunity to teach you uh, a church history theology term that you didn't know you needed. Uh, the word is Gnosticism. Some of you might be familiar with it. It is the earliest heresy or one of the earliest heresies that the church had to combat in those early years. Gnosticism is the belief that bodies are evil and bad. So God wouldn't possibly put one on. They rejected the Christian message of Jesus taking on human flesh because they were so Greco-Roman influenced about this idea that there is a soul in us that is good, but our bodies are messed up and evil, which means we can do whatever we want with them because they're already messed up and evil, and there will be a good part of us that lives on forever. And they were so influenced by that. They're like, oh, God would not put on this grossness. And the early church had to say, no, 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 that's not, that's not true. Jesus was God and man. He was embodied, and he actually died a physical death and rose from the dead. Because the Gnostics said, well, no, he couldn't have died. He didn't actually have a human body on. Uh, he, he just you know, sort of pretended to be dead uh, and then showed up a couple days later like, hey. And they're like, the Christians are going, no, no, that's not how this went. No, because we've seen him and we've talked to him. And, he, and we watched him die. Uh, and then we, we watched him show up again. He was embodied. He really did die a physical death and he really did rise from the dead. And not only that, our theology says, but God has now moved into us. This may not apply to everybody, but it does apply to every Christian. You and I are God inhabited at the moment we devote our lives to Jesus. Look, of all the crazy things that Christians believe, this may be the craziest. Uh, and and um, if you don't realize that Christians believe crazy things, it's just because you've become so used to it that you have forgotten just how crazy the things we believe are. Like, we, we believe that heaven took on human skin. We believe that a guy died and rose from the dead. These are crazy things. I think the craziest thing that we believe is what Jesus promised, that after his resurrection, he's hanging out with his disciples. He said, hey, I'm going to go to heaven where I'm going to live forever. I'll come back for you one day. Uh, and you, in the meantime, are going to be my witnesses to people around the world. But here's what I need you to do first. I need you to just hang tight because I am promising you this gift from God called a Holy Spirit. His spirit is going to come to you. So just hang out in the big city here. I know you're small town boys and you really want to get back out to the country, but hang out in the big city here for me for a while and just stay here until Holy Spirit falls on you. And so they did. And it did. And scripture then talks about the indwelling of Holy Spirit in all of us who believe. First Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, says this to the early Corinthian church. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your 
body, we house God in us, just as the temple in Jerusalem did before us. Our bodies are God-inhabited. So our bodies are God-made, they are God-inhabited, and they are eternally significant, eternally significant. When Jesus was resurrected, he reappeared to his disciples and friends, as I said, and we read that he sat and he ate and he talked and he slept. He did embodied things. Is it not the ghost of Jesus that they're talking to? And some of the things about his body were the same as they had been before he died. For instance, he uh, shows the disciples the holes in his wrists and in his feet from the crucifixion. Somehow the wounds are left over. But something about the body is also very different because people have trouble recognizing him at first. People who followed him around for three years don't recognize him at first. How, how, does, how does this happen? How are we sharing some things and not different? And what does it mean for us? Here's the best analogy I've heard. I'm stealing this from uh, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project. Here's the best analogy I've heard. Uh, and it starts with us taking a deep breath together. So if you would be so kind as to indulge me, will you take a deep breath in and hold it and blow it out slowly? When you do that, you are using your lungs. You know that. You're breathing in oxygen. You're breathing out CO2. It is one of the incredible, marvelous, wonderful things that God has made in us. Your lungs started developing in utero between week three and five, and they start growing almost like trees. They kind of have roots, and they kind of branch out. And at one point, much further in development, on the end of those tree branches, if you will, these little air sacs develop. And those little air sacs, when they develop, are completely unnecessary. Because as you are living all that time, and you are living all that time, you're not breathing in anything. You're connected to a cord to your mother. You are swimming around in this fluid and those lungs that are working so hard to develop that are going to be so necessary aren't doing what they are made to do yet. But they, they will. When you emerge from your little hot tub and breathe in and scream because it's so bright, scary, whatever, your lungs assuming full development, your lungs are ready to go to do something that they've never had to do before. It's the same you. It's the same body. It's a different way of life, of actually living. When we are resurrected, something similar will happen. Same you, same body, different form of life. Our bodies are significant because they are eternally significant. God made, God inhabited, eternally significant. Okay, 
Why does all this matter? All this talk about bodies is actually a setup for two different topics. Uh, one is that what we do with our bodies, how we treat them and treat others, really does matter, and we will talk more about that next week. The second is today I want to talk about male and female, man and woman, boy and girl. I want to talk about these terms that we use, how scripture uses them to some degree, why they are significant, why male and female matters, and to what degree, I suppose, it matters. Uh, When we say male and female, we do not automatically assume we're talking about human beings. I mean, male and female applies to any, uh, many of God's creatures. Male and female is a biological term. It is, again, about our sexed bodies. Could be about the sexed bodies of fish or gorillas or giraffes or whatever. But there is something significant, Scripture says, about the male and female human body because together we image God. And so then the distinctiveness of male and female, the significance of male and female, what male and female each brings to life also matters. And I want to be careful here because I don't mean roles. Scripture talks about that some too, about different roles for men and women, and, um, and some of that is eternal, and some of that is cultural, and some of that is biological. We're not going to get into that part today. I mean that throughout Scripture... It talks about the distinctiveness of male and female in a number of different ways and how both are needed to image God and and the importance of that. Just one example. Uh, This is one that is uh, quoted in a number of different places I saw as I was researching for these topics. Deuteronomy 22.5. So I'm aware I'm pulling a verse completely out of context. encourage you to go read it. Deuteronomy 22.5. A woman must not put on men's clothing, and a man must not wear women's clothing. Anyone who does this is detestable in the sight of the Lord your God. Well, that feels really harsh, Um, but I suppose fairly straightforward. Uh, But this is the same verse that was used 60 years ago telling women that they couldn't wear pants. And if we continue to hold on to that definition, a whole lot of y'all, and I'm looking up at the ceiling, so I'm not making eye contact with anybody. I'm just saying. (laughs) A whole lot of y'all be in trouble today. This verse is almost certainly actually talking about trickery, about deceit, about uh, lying to someone regarding your biology trying to disguise the distinctiveness of how God has made you. Culturally, 
And by culturally, I, I don't just mean like church and culture. I mean like all of us who grow up in the Western world. Culturally, rather than celebrating the distinctive imaging of God that we find in male and female, we actually try really hard to hold on to stereotypes of masculine and feminine. I don't want to talk about that. The problem, well, the, the problems with that are many. One of them is that stereotypes are always changing. For example, in uh, 1927, so less than 100 years ago, uh, a magazine that I'm currently forgetting the name of did a study of department stores about colors and where different colors went in the department store, right? Because department stores are really just, they're in their heyday in the 20s, men's section, women's section, whatever. Pink was in the men's section. It was a masculine color, it's just a light red, light red. And it wasn't actually until 1947, 48, when um, Mamie Eisenhower, President Eisenhower's wife, wore a big, bright, pink, glittering dress to the inaugural ball, that it fully shifted. It had been kind of changing over time, as things do, and it fully shifted. And now all the fashion magazines uh, are writing to all the women who want to wear pink all the time so that they can be as glamorous as the president's wife. High heels and tights uh, were actually created uh, for royal men to wear so they could be distinctive uh, from working class men, those working class men down there. Don't get to wear high heels and tights. Uh, made them look taller. It was actually, um, high heels were invented um, as a uh, symbol of aggression and ability to win wars, which I'm not sure about that part. And I don't want to go too far with that thought, but it was. The exterior ways that we define men and women that we define masculine and feminine very wildly from culture to culture, even today, very wildly. The Western American church, sorry, like Western world, not just the Western United States, the Western world, the church in the Western world, including, or maybe especially America, has spent so much time fighting for or against these stereotypes that we've, we've managed to shove people out of a willingness to hear the gospel because they don't match the stereotypes. Now, Obviously, I, I know what this experience is on the men's side of things more than the, the women's side of things, so I will stick to the men's side. On the one hand, we look at Jesus and we see somebody who does not match our culture's stereotypes for masculine or feminine. He cries a whole lot more than I thought I was allowed to growing up. And I grew up in a family where that was actually totally okay. He tells us to not fight back. The, the number of uh, 
social media videos out there of dads giving advice on how to raise sons and how you teach them to fight back and punch if, if you have to? Jesus says, yeah, nope, none of that. We're actually far more comfortable with uh, the, the tossing tables, Jesus, because that matches our preconceived notions of masculinity and aggressiveness. And so when we look at this, uh, we have spent way too much time in different sectors of the church trying to teach guys that Jesus is going to strip all their masculinity away. They've been raised in a culture that says, this is what it means to be masculine. And we've said, okay, yeah, yeah, but if you're going to come be part of a church and come belong to Jesus, uh, he's going to steal all of that from you. Not, not talking about how Jesus is going to form us into being a better person, but no, no, he's, he's just going to take all this away from you. You're going to have to set all of that aside to come and, and follow Jesus. The reaction to that in other sectors of the church has also been pretty strong. Uh, and uh, I'll just say it this way. Uh, in the American church, men's and women's retreats do a whole lot more to uh, double down on stereotypes than they do anything else. I, and I'm, I'm absolutely uh, guilty of this, right? We, in the American church, we want you to know that our men's retreats, uh, we are going to go out and, and we're going to kill dinner ourselves. We're probably just going to eat it raw out there in the woods. We're going to tear the meat with our teeth. Uh, there also will be golf for the culture guys. Uh, and, and we just, we double down on all of the male stereotypes and say, you want to come to this event because of how well it fits the stereotypes. I don't fit any of these stereotypes. Not a one of them. I have found through my, whatever, 25 years in the church as a person following Jesus that I have been loved well anyway. I still get nervous before men's retreats because I the like the middle school voice in the back of my head is like walking into a locker room, like, oh, I'm just not gonna be manly enough for these guys. Uh, some of y'all are manly men, and I'm I'm intimidated. I don't know what else to tell you. Not every guy who follows Jesus, <laughs> or every guy at all, uh, is into hunting and fishing and whatever other stereotypes you want to come up with. Covering themselves in Cheetos while they watch football. I don't know. <laughs> Not every woman wants to go to a women's retreat where uh, they're just going to sew and knit and crochet all weekend. <laughs> Some of you are mad now. You're like, I would love to go to that retreat. Where is that one? I just... That's what I'm saying, though, right? Like, and, and for... Also, that's not what our women's retreats are. Before anybody gets to, like, that's, anyway. Okay, that's true. No, right. Yeah, no, I've heard about the bunko throwdowns, but we'll just, hearing about them is plenty. I don't need to share those. Okay. Um, for whatever reason, and I think the, the reasons are probably all over the place. 
The church has been really committed to enforcing and reinforcing or fighting for or against stereotypes. I think one of the things that happens is that we are holding in one hand our belief that that people are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And we hear people who, who look around the world and they go, I don't think I fit into any of these stereotypes. And unfortunately, the world and the church right along with it has spent a lot of time going, well, you got to fit into some stereotypes, so which one's it going to be? The only way that you get to feel like you belong is if you meet these expectations one way or the other. And a lot of people then have gone, well, I actually fit the other box better. I'll do that. And the church is over here holding, I think appropriately, this truth that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we hear somebody go, actually, I think God made a mistake with me. And we go, nope, can't be true. And we squish them. And we say, nope, you must be wrong. And the way we're going to prove to you that you're wrong is we're going to double down on these stereotypes that you should hold on to. And we've been so busy fighting for or against the stereotypes that we forgot we're supposed to be fighting for people. That we've been so busy fighting for or against the stereotypes, we forgot that our call is to love people. We've been so busy fighting for and against stereotypes, we haven't realized that we're actually following what the world tells us we're supposed to look like. Because we're focused on the stereotypes that our culture has created about what it looks like to be masculine or feminine. And in following the world's lead, we have done what the world has done, and we've forgotten how to love. We have to care more about people than we do about stereotypes. We have to. In clinging to stereotypes, we have pushed people away from Jesus. In clinging to stereotypes, we have made pursuing the stereotypes more important than pursuing Jesus. And we're trying to be faithful to scripture and we don't realize that we are following the wrong things. That we're not supposed to be pointing toward manliness or womanliness to masculinity or to femininity. Look, one of the consequences uh, that we uh, read about as sin is is introduced in Scripture. Uh, It's actually the first consequence we, we see. Sin is introduced by our desire to determine good and evil for ourselves, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. And the first consequence is that the humans realize they're naked and they're ashamed. That they look at their bodies and they feel shame. And I think to some degree, humanity has been fighting against that shame of our own bodies ever since. I don't know what middle school felt like for you. Maybe you thrived in middle school, and I am happy for you. Most of us, like if there is a time period of our life that we would go, I'm not redoing that one. 
Middle school, junior high, that's the one. Because of the mentality I was talking about earlier about, man, there's, there's these expectations that I think I'm supposed to meet of what it means to move from being a little boy into a man. And I don't feel capable of doing that. I'm not sure I'm interested in doing that. And for a lot of us, we felt like we had no other choice other than to fake it till we made it or hide or, or get shoved in trash cans. I, sort of our choices. And, and for middle schoolers and high schoolers today, they have more options. Because socially, society has said, actually, let's give you as many options as you want. Fine, you don't fit those stereotypes. I can help you get out of that. Just choose a different path. Now, there are a lot of people who struggle with something that is a currently diagnosable, um, I guess, cognitive dissonance, a, a mental health struggle, where they feel like my biology and who I feel like I really am as a gender don't match. This is a rapidly increasing number. The last statistic I have is from 2021, um, but there were 42,000 people under the age of 17 who were diagnosed with gender dysphoria in 2021. That was double what it was in 2020 and three times what it was in 2017. And there's two ways to look at that number. Uh, one is to go, great, look at how much more freedom people have. Well, I guess there's a whole spectrum of ways. On one end is the great, look how much more freedom people have. And on the other end is a lot of skepticism about why that number is rising so quickly. But either way, we need to acknowledge that there are people who are going, who are hearing a term like gender dysphoria and going, oh, oh, there's a term for what it, I feel like is happening in, in me. That for some people, there's a lot of fear that comes with gender dysphoria. We're being taught a lot of fear. For some, there's a sense of relief and a sense of fear. As they try to hide from the people around them who are supposed to love them. And when the church responds by saying, here's the stereotypes, and when you choose to fit in them, you can come be part of us. We shove people away from Jesus, and we miss an opportunity to say, let me tell you about being fearfully and wonderfully made. Let me tell you about my experience with feeling like I don't match the gender expectations on me. Let me tell you about how we image the God, the image the God of the universe as male and female. Let me tell you about how much the God who made you loves you like crazy. Can we start with, you are loved just as you are with your confusion and your, your hopes and your dreams and your fears and your doubts. You are loved just the way you are. Can I tell you that you're loved? And then can we talk about how God wants to meet you where you are? meet you at your point of doubts because he meets all of us at our point of doubts. And that the church can be a place where you don't have to fit the stereotypes. And here's why, and it's really significant. 
Because the Bible does not call us to be more masculine or feminine. It calls us to be more like Jesus. We are not called to be more masculine or feminine. We are called to be more like Jesus. We are God-made. We reflect God into the universe, and that has to reflect his love as well. Our human bodies are so significant to God that he took one on just to show us his love for us. And your God-made, God-inhabited body does not have to be more masculine or feminine to be loved by God and should not have to be more masculine or feminine to be loved by the church because we are all on the same journey of following after Jesus, the one who blows all those stereotypes out of the water, who invites us to come and be loved, to come and be formed by his love for us as we come and are formed by Christ. We are told over and over in scripture, in Romans and Ephesians, that we are being molded, made to be more like Jesus. So if you are someone, may have never struggled with uh, the word gender, but you struggle with whether you can fit into the church's masculine and feminine boxes, can I invite you to come and find out that you can just be more like Jesus as he works on your life as we follow him together. Let me pray for us as we do that. Father God, we come to you as people who are made by you. We come in awe that you would inhabit us. God, I know um, my heart and my mind are a mess. And that you would, that you would come in and not condemn the mess, but would, would offer to help me clean up. That you would look at the things that I've chained myself to in my life and said, hey, none of those things have to rule your life anymore. God, that you would do that for all of us. I, I am in awe, blown away. I'm grateful. Jesus, we want to be more like you. Holy Spirit, would you mold us? Would you craft our hearts? Jesus, we want to pursue you. We, we want to be everyday normal people who are following you every day. Where we get sidetracked and off track, would, would you call us back to yourself? To remind us of your love, the love with which we are made, love with which we're called, love with which we're cared for. And would we believe you, trust you. You really do love us. You really do have good for us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.